I'm Bob Main, and you're listening to another episode of today's Survival Show. Helping you do what you can with what you have, wherever you are. Thanks for downloading and listening. This is a no-tin-foil hat approach to prepping and survival. You know, I try to keep this rooted in common sense, folks. I'm not a big conspiracy theorist guy or anything like that. Just not quite my style. So, I'm back. I took quite a few months off from doing this show. Let me explain what happened. Just give me about a minute and a half here, and then we'll get right into the topic. What happened was that I got some... I had some technical difficulties. Something went wrong with my feed. I'm not quite sure what it was. It took me a while to get it fixed, and I couldn't devote a whole lot of time to getting it fixed because I've just been swamped lately. I've been busy. Um, you know, I do another podcast. I've now gotten into some firearms training for two different companies, actually, on the side, kind of a second job. My full-time job is going great and really keeping me busy. I'm blessed that I've got a good full-time job and that it's keeping me busy. So I am feeling good about the fact that I am employed because I understand that a lot of people in the country are struggling right now. And of course, I raise a family or I help raise a family. So all of that has pretty much consumed me. The break was good. I'm back. I'm fresh. I'm ready to talk about survival and prepping again from a common sense standpoint. So As I'm in my car, as I often do, I thought it would be important to bring to you an interview. Now, of course, obviously, the interview was done a little over a week ago. But I had a chance to talk to Glenn Tate. He's the author of a book called 299 Days. Now, I know a lot of you who listen to this show, you're avid readers, and you love to read books about prepping and survival. And I've had authors on before on this show. This is the first time I've ever had Glenn Tate talk about his book, and it's quite an extensive book called 299 Days, and it's pretty practical. As you know, I do not like the tinfoil hatter type people. I think you know who they are. I don't have to name names. I think you know who they are, right? Well, Glenn is definitely not one of them. He's not one of the tinfoil hatters. And so what I like is he's written his book in a very common sense manner, and he talks about things that everyday people need to be concerned about, even in this interview coming up. This is not just a sales pitch for the book. He talks about everyday preparedness. I want to apologize in advance for the audio quality. For some reason, Skype had a lot of static on it. You should still be able to get a lot out of this interview. It should still be very listenable. No problem there. It's just not quite the audio quality that I would have liked. Anyway, That shouldn't take away from the content matter. Glenn Tate, the author of 299 Days. Stay tuned. My guest for this show is Glenn Tate. How are you doing, Glenn? Doing great, Bob. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. So I've got you on to talk about your book coming out. Now, I know you want to talk about your book. And just for the listener's benefit, I've also asked Glenn to kind of talk about some of the things that he foresees this for the future of this country and stuff. So uh, I'm sure he'll speak to that. Uh, Glenn, your book is 299 days, right? That's right. 299 days, the number 299 days. Okay, it's called 299 Days, 299 Days. Where can people find it? 
primarily Amazon. Um, it's it's there, and you can search for two nine nine days. Um, book one and book two are currently out. It's a ten book series. Book three and four will be coming out in mid November, and then two book sets will be released approximately every three months. All these books are written, so don't think that if you start this series, I'm going to try to slap two books together in a three month time period or something. There, yeah, they're written. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's how that is. There are um, a couple other places selling it online. Um, the best way to, to get uh, pointed towards a place to buy it, other than Amazon, would be to go to the website, 299days.com, and uh, we can point you in the right direction. Okay, and just for listeners' benefit, I will also put a link in my show notes uh, on the blog page and also on the Gun Rights Radio Network forum. There will be a link to how to find Glenn's book, on Amazon, so <clears throat> check that out at my website. Well, one of the things I like about you, Glenn, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on the show is because you're kind of like me. You're kind of like an everyday guy, and you sort of believe in the no tinfoil hat philosophy that I believe in. Uh, talk a little bit about that and kind of what got you motivated to write this book on on prepping called 299 Days. Yeah, we share a common vision, and that is no tinfoil hat stuff. I don't believe aliens are coming down from space. I don't believe there's a secret meteor strike that only I know about because I'm smarter than everyone else on Earth and everyone should listen to me. Um, I don't believe in some of the wacky um, ideas about a collapse. I don't think you need to come up with complicated theories about why the United States is in for, in my opinion, a very tough time because reality is better of a predictor than crazy theories. The reality that I see, and I should pause for a moment and say, my job in real life uh, allows me to observe government at a rather high level. I get to see things. I, I know folks in, in the government, primarily in the state of Washington. Uh, that's where I'm based, Washington State. And um, I get to, get to see things and sit in conference rooms and have friends that sit in conference rooms that get to observe amazing things. And there is no... <laughs> gigantic conspiracy. Um, all it is primarily is debt. Um, the state of Washington and the United States of America has far, far, far too much debt. Uh, governmental debt, and of course people have lots of personal debt. Um, the, the college, or student loan debt, I think is over a trillion dollars now, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it's amazing. And so, and so there's there's way, way too much debt. It's, it's unsustainable. As a mathematical matter, it is impossible for the economy to be productive enough for us to pay the government debt and even in some ways pay the personal debt. So it's unsustainable. That's the key word. It's unsustainable. So what does that mean? That means that the government will no longer be able to spend the money that it currently spends. Um, A large portion of the United States is dependent in one way or another on the government spending money on them. Um, And so when that slowly starts to unravel, um, there will be a political backlash. People will say, wait a minute, I used to get all this free stuff, why aren't you giving me this stuff? You're giving this guy stuff, and you're oh, giving yeah. her stuff, but why not me? And that's what typically happens when things go bad, people start fighting amongst themselves. I think there will be a, a big event, well, I should back up, there's a, there's a slow boiling problem that I just described. I think People see it in everyday headlines. Uh, they see Greece. They see things like that. They, they understand what's going on. I think there would be a, a large event. I don't think it'll be complicated or conspiratorial. I think it'll involve the, the value of the U.S. dollar. 
as you know, the U.S. is in the very enviable position of being the world reserve currency. And so we can do a bunch of crazy things and print too much money and spend too much money. And the rest of the world just has to deal with it. Well, they're not going to enjoy just putting up with us for too much longer. And I think that there would be a, an announcement of some kind that the dollar won't be the world reserve currency. There would be a giant devaluation of the dollar. I don't think this happens overnight. Um, the book Patriots portrays this as happening virtually instantly. I don't think yeah. it will. I think that people will have investments and they won't want even foreign investors, they won't want their investments to instantly evaporate. So it'll it'll take some time, a period of days or weeks or something like that and, and people will be able to see that this is happening. I don't think necessarily that um, all of a sudden there'll be a flash in the sky and, and you know the world will end. Um, I think we'll have some warning. Now, you need to start doing things about that now. Um, but So that's that's what I foresee. And then as a consequence, um, things will cost a lot of money. Gasoline will be extremely expensive. It already is. <laughs> well, that's true. Even more expensive. Uh, it's double what it was four years ago. And um, in part because the dollar is devaluated. And so yeah. um, we will see people panic. Um, some will go out and buy all the gasoline they can and go to the grocery stores and buy all the Doritos they can. Um, in the book, I repeatedly make fun of Doritos. I don't know where that came from, but I just, you know, it sort of encapsulates uh, some some portion of the United States that just thinks that Doritos are, you know, it's sort of the way it is. We're all living in a convenience store kind of world, I think. Um, not all of us. Um, people listening to you are. But so there will be shortages and there will be panic, um, and I think that that will lead to uh, a lack of, of law and order. The police will be overtaxed. I think that this book is entirely different from every other book out there for one reason, and that's because I foresee a partial collapse. Um, I don't think that there will be zombies and cannibals and Max <laughs> and all that kind of stuff because my theory is is that the more dramatic something is, the less likely it is to occur. And I just don't think um, we'll be living in that kind of world. I think that when there's a lack of law and order, there will still be law and order. And in fact, in a place where you live or others live, there might be kind of a normal amount of law and order, which is another reason not to be crazy and go off and commit a bunch of crimes, besides the fact that crimes are immoral and you need to be a decent person. Yeah. There very likely will be law enforcement existing at the time, or there could be, after a short period of time, law enforcement reappearing. So... You know, if you think out there, and I, your listeners probably don't, but I just need to say this because I, I think our community, the prepper community, has such a bad name sometimes. If you think that a collapse of the United States is a great excuse to go out and shoot people, um, please don't buy my book. Please don't listen to Bob Maine's podcast. Exactly. I 100% agree with you. 100% agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not the, the approach in here, but it's a partial collapse. And the reason the book is different is that I describe things like the utilities stay on. Um, there, there are brief periods in which they don't stay on. The reason they stay on, I won't spoil, it comes up in some other books, I think is, is very fascinating and I think it's very realistic why the utilities would stay on. That's kind of counterintuitive in the prepper novel world. You mean that the utilities stay on? I mean, that's crazy. We can't have that. Um, <laughs> I think that the, that the cities uh, will um, not be pleasant places to live, but I think there will be uh, a, a pretty decent level of government services functioning because the government will concentrate all of its resources on cities and making sure that 
they uh, they stay under control. In the book, since this all takes place in Washington State, it's Seattle and the state capital of Olympia um, that are the strongholds, uh, if you will. And outside of the cities, as, as you go out from there, you'll see varying levels of governmental services, and uh, farther out you get in the country, the fewer governmental services there will be, and out in the country um, there will be um, self-sufficiency, um, not entire and complete self-sufficiency. Another thing that's different about this book, I don't see people all of a sudden planting a garden and and eating all the food they need from their garden from the get-go. Let's say you know this happens in the middle of winter. I don't think people will just have gardens springing up. Exactly. Um, they, they will be um, relying in some part on, on government food that's distributed through a freedom cards, as I talk about in the book, which uh, are are based on everybody's life savings and, uh, and Social Security and all the other funds in, in banks. Um, the government decides to uh, nationalize all those funds, but in exchange, don't worry, citizens, you're going to get something. You're going to get a freedom card, which is a little card that allows you to go to a grocery store and get a bunch of, you know, uh, freeze-dried mashed potatoes. Yeah, I think we know that that's coming. I think we know that that's coming. Absolutely. I I can't imagine how you can have the kind of debt this country has, with, and then you have the amount of savings we have. We don't have enough savings, but we've got a few trillion dollars sitting, you know, electronically in accounts somewhere, and then um, the government wouldn't look at that big, fat, juicy chunk of money and not think to themselves, we're the government. We can spend that better than, than the people. I mean, I've... <laughs> well, they're already doing that. <laughs> well, I've been in conference rooms where government people have said, we can spend money better than, than the little people. The is little that people. right? Well, it really? something I added, the little people thing. Yeah, I think that, in, and this is a generalization. Um, don't forget, I live in Washington State, which is one of the most um, left-wing... I'm trying not to be political. Believe me, I'm not a partisan guy. I don't care about that stuff, much like you, but... Um, some government people in power um, really think that they can spend money better than anybody else, and they get a little miffed when we, the taxpayers, don't fork over more money to let the brilliant people like them go spend. And, and so I think they would seize um, on these accounts. And then in the book, um, the Freedom Cards, um, yeah. which are called F Cards, that's kind of a little funny joke there, um, they, uh, <laughs> they get... They're used in varying degrees by people. Um, if you're out in the country, there might be a shipment of food. The, the government uh, nationalizes the diesel fuel and all the trucks, and, and the highways are pretty secure because they need to be. Um, and the government gets some food, not enough, but some food out to the rural areas, and people pay for it with the F cards. So that is another example of this not being a complete collapse. Number one, I think that's more realistic. And number two... It, uh, it adds complications. You've got now people that have to garden a little bit. There's a little bit of charity. I think there's going to be a ton of charity when all this happens. There will be so many people, so many sheepdogs, so many people like us, Bob, who are going to help people. Um, and there'll be that, and then there'll be a little bit of government food coming in. Um, and so through these various sources, I don't think there will be a, a mass starvation. I just I don't, I don't want to believe that, first of all. And second of all... It gets to that thing about the more dramatic something is, the less likely it is to occur. So that's the partial collapse that's depicted um, in these ten books. And uh, it's one of the reasons I think that the first publisher I sent this to, um, I'm not an author. Um, I'm a regular guy. I have a white-collar job. I have right. a day job. Right. But, uh, uh, 
I sent this book to the first publisher, um, Prepper Press, and um, they called me right back and were very interested. I think it's because nobody's talking about the, in my view, more realistic partial collapse. Um, books about complete collapses are great to read. There, there are a bunch of them. Um, Patriots comes to mind one second after. Um, exactly, and those are good. And it's great. It's great to wake people up and make them think what if. And there's a lot of, first of all, entertainment in them, but second of all, a lot of good information. And people should read total collapse books. They really should. They should also read a partial collapse book because it'll give you another view. And speaking of another view, um, there are a lot of characters in the book, many of whom are based on real people, by the way. Uh-huh. Um, the main character is, is me. Uh, it's autobiographical. Um, <laughs> pardon, pardon me for, you know, indulging myself in that, but it's the only person I could write about because I don't have that great of an imagination. I, I write about real things. But um, you get to see the viewpoint of people who are um, uh, people who love the government taking care of them. They're sort of on the other side of you and me. Um, and they describe one of the characters is in the book is my sister who's a professor in Seattle um, and she describes how great it is that the government is taking care of everybody and so you see it from a variety of viewpoints this isn't rah 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 government's bad uh, all these other things um, it is viewpoints from from the other side then there are people who change their minds uh, who start off thinking the government's working great. They're working for me. This is awesome. And then they, they change their minds midway through. Um, and so it's it's real because people really do come from different viewpoints and they really do change their minds when a big event happens. Right. Will, will change. And it's another part of this book that is important besides the partial collapse is normalcy bias. You've talked about it a lot. Um, I think the term describes what the problem is with normalcy bias, but you get to see it from a variety of um, angles in this book, um, particularly my wife in the book, who just is, she, you know, grew up upper middle class and just cannot believe that that bad things would happen, and she wonders why, you know, I'm so crazy and, and, and doing all these things. Um, and then she just, in the beginning of the book at least, cannot believe that, these things could possibly happen and wants desperately for things to be normal. That's the part of normalcy bias that gets people killed. Well, sure it is, yeah. And that's the problem is, you know, they don't, it's the same thing with with firearms because, you know, this show is primarily about firearms, although I'm trying to wake people up to the need of prepping, which is one reason why I brought you on. But a lot of people don't want to believe that a bad guy could bust into their house or could attack them on the street. And so therefore they wonder, gee, why would anybody need to carry a gun? It's the same thing you're talking about. People people don't want to believe that we could be in a, in a situation in this country where services, just general services, could be quite scarce. And like, and you hit the nail on the head, you know, the, 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 the debt problem, the runaway spending, you know, the, the, the spending that government officials that you have witnessed saying that think well this we can just do this and there's no consequences for it well i got news for people the ones that are going to be paying the consequences for what these knuckleheads are doing are you me and everybody listening to this show yeah and i another thing in the book that i think is going to be really interesting to your listeners i assume most of your listeners are like me and you and they're sheepdogs i'm sure you you know that phrase i think you've used it too but it's i have yes Right, who um, are 
the sheep dogs look after the sheep. The sheep are kind of ignorant, and there are wolves out there that want to eat the sheep. And the sheep dogs are a unique breed. They they protect sheep, and they really don't have any incentive to. They're just built that way. They're wired that way. Well, throughout the book, there are a bunch of sheep dogs from various backgrounds. Um, some military people, some law enforcement people, lots of regular civilians, men, women. You know, people of all different races, all kinds of people. Because in my world, um, that's who sheepdogs are. They're a variety of people. But the sheepdogs um, go and, and do good things. And I don't mean comic book things. I don't mean, you know, charging machine gun nests and just all that kind of comic book stuff that I... I don't know. I'm so realistic and practical. I can't stand that exaggerated stuff. But the sheepdogs save the day, which is what I think is going to happen and which is why um, I think it's fantastic that people carry concealed for example um, that's a sheepdog thing but well, I'll tell you there, there's a lot of downside that comes to carrying concealed I mean people should do it I'm not trying to convince people not to but you know it costs money you have to dress differently um, right you have to get a license sometimes your spouse doesn't want you to um, sometimes you're just tired and you don't want to go and put that different belt on you know for that for that holster and stuff and sheepdogs go about it and say I'm going to make some sacrifices because um, I'm just the way I am and I'm, I'm going to help people well that concept magnified greatly um, plays out over and over again in this book in, in various ways and, and, and that's what I'm really proud of I think that people are going to have a new view of what preppers are like and it's going to be a positive view and it's going to be a realistic view yeah, well, can I ask you a question about your? You I want to ask you about your story because your story is quite compelling. I, I really like it. Um, I did hear your interview with the Gun Dudes several months back, where you told your story, and I kind of relate to it. And one of the things that I think is kind of neat is you said you began the writing and you began doing some of this stuff all at first in secret, right? Absolutely, I took two and a half years to write this and the entire two and a half year period I did this secretly um, my wife had no idea I was writing a 3200 page 10 book series just kind of hard to pull off uh, <laughs> and I uh, would get up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning and write for a few hours um, and I did that for about two and a half years um, this this whole story started off because of uh, the secrecy my my wife now knows about the book. I mean, obviously, I mean, you know, can't hide that from her. Um, and uh, she she knows about this. But in the beginning, she was uh, resistant to the idea of prepping. And so I had to do this secretly. So the way the book started is the Easter Bunny. Um, I was prepping secretly, and I thought, okay, when some event happens, and it's entirely apparent that we need to bug in or we need to bug out, um, I need to have an explanation why all this food materialized in the garage, why uh, all these firearms, <laughs> yeah, all these, all these guns she's never seen uh, materialized, uh, ammo cans, you know, water filters and, and all kinds of first aid stuff and all that. How did this stuff just come about? Well, there's two approaches to that. Um, I could say, I told you so, honey. You were wrong. You didn't want to prep. I did it, and I had to do it, and so I'm right, you're wrong. We're doing things my way. There's a crisis. That's one approach. That's not a very good approach. That's a terrible approach for a variety <laughs> of reasons. And the second approach is to, the, the approach I took, is to be humble and 
that's where the Easter Bunny comes in. I took the Easter Bunny approach, and that is to say, honey, you might notice there's a bunch of supplies in the garage. The Easter Bunny dropped them off, and just leave it at that. And that's a way to save face. Um, and instead of talking about, I was right and you're wrong, the Easter Bunny dropped these off now. How are we going to make sure the kids are comforted, and how are we going to get to safety if that's what we need to do? How are we going to do all the things as a family that we need to do to make it through this bad situation and then return life to normal as quickly as possible? I'm all for that. Yeah. So I started outlining this Easter Bunny speech because as I foresaw it, there would be a big event, and I would have to give the Easter Bunny speech, and I thought this is probably the most important discussion I'm ever going to have with my wife because it's a life or death situation. And so I need to get this get this speech right. I need to do this well. So I started outlining it. And I outlined things like why the collapse has come, what I did to prepare for it, um, what we need to do going forward. And this outline kept getting longer and longer. Again, this is an extremely important discussion I'm having. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. And so it got longer and longer and longer. And I looked at this and I thought, my goodness, this Easter Bunny speech is a a perfect description of why people need to prep, how they need to prep, and what they need to do in a in a crisis situation. I thought, wow, this this would maybe help some people out and be interesting. So I thought, well I'll write a short story. It'll basically be the Easter Bunny speech. It'll be a few pages and and that that'd be kind of neat. I'll put it on a forum or something and maybe a few people read it and then as I started working on the Easter Bunny speech I said well I need to describe um, context I need to describe how how things happened and it got longer and then I said well maybe this would be a short book but gee I mean I, I don't know I guess I'll publish it on my on my own and maybe you know sell 100 copies to friends or something like that then I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. I got inspired. I would get up. I would wake up, Bob. I would spring up in bed at about 3.30. No kidding? I would spring up, and I had a chapter outlined in my head. I would sit down, and and the keyboard would start clacking away, and all of a sudden, it was 6 or 6.30, and I was hungry, and and all of a sudden, these these chapters just kept, they they would just flow out of me, and um, pretty soon, (laughs) two and a half years being pretty soon, (laughs) I had 3,200 pages, and um, I said, well, okay, I can self-publish this, but, you know, maybe maybe a publisher would be interested. That's when I contacted Prepper Press, and as they say, the uh, the rest is history. We broke it into 10 books because it would be way too big to do otherwise, and um, and, th- and then that's what happened, and now it's, it's out there. Um, I've been um, talking about it quite a bit. The reaction has been absolutely astounding. I'm I'm a humble guy. I, I happen to have a story that a lot of people can relate to because it's a guy who right. to prep in secret and there's resistance and he does it anyway. Um, and, and it's really resonated. Um, and I get emails from people. I get personal messages on Facebook and, and on forums. And, um, and people say things. The highest compliment they pay me is uh, they say, my wife or husband there are some husbands out there who have normalcy bias and some wives who are prepping. We can't forget that. Right. Uh, they say my spouse was not down with this very important program, and um, I've convinced them that we need to prep because they read 
book one and two. And I, I get goosebumps even saying that. That is the highest honor out there. Sure it is. Sure it is. You know, what I love. it is the highest honor. And I've said that many times. You know, even when people say to me that something that I've done or said or put on the show has, you know, helped them change their life in some way, that's it is a high honor. And I, I, I don't take that lightly. And I think that you, you've experienced that. You know what that's all about. Yeah, I've, I've lived it. And, and that's that's the neat thing. I've, I've gone through a very difficult struggle and come out doing okay with it. And I want to share that. I want to get as many people out there um, taking care of what they need to take care of for what I really, truly believe is coming. And um, it's possible if you prepare, especially with a partial collapse like I envision, it is partial to, or pardon me, it's possible to live through it, perhaps even be moderately comfortable through the whole thing. And then to recover as quickly as possible and then get back on with your life. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's entirely doable if you take some reasonable steps here. And that's, that's one of the things I talk about in the book um, is I didn't go crazy on this. It's very easy to get emotional and get scared and to start ordering thousands of dollars of freeze-dried food and putting it on a credit card. Um, that's a bad approach for a variety of reasons. And... Um, I had a, a deal with my daughter, teenage daughter. Um, I told her that I told her what I was doing, and I said, "If if your dad is starting to be unreasonable, you get to tell me." Um, and I talk about this in the book. How empowering for a you know fourteen, fifteen year old girl to be told by her dad that if if her dad's doing something unreasonable, she's the one who gets to decide what's reasonable or not. But I thought <laughs> it was important to have a check of some kind. Um, teenager's judgment maybe isn't the best check to have on yourself, but anyway, um, have a little check on myself because you have to approach this reasonably and rationally, and and that's what I've done, and, and that story of how that happened uh, is something that is going to get out there and is going to help other folks do this reasonably and rationally, and, and that's terrific. Yeah, well, that's cool. Now I understand that um, you know you're you're in government. And you can't talk too much about that, and I understand that you know you go to great lengths to try to keep that uh, under you know under wraps because it could it could affect you and in, in your career and things like that. But um, other than the spending, what else do you kind of see out there that is taking place that you want to kind of alert people to? Well, um, I see some. And I'm not a tinfoil hat guy, but I need to answer your question. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not a tinfoil hatter either. But I do see some some troubling um, civil liberties issues going on. Um, I think the the passage by both political parties. I'd like to add the passage of the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, is very troubling to me. Yep, it really does. I've read it. I mean, this is not made up stuff. Um, it really does allow the President of the United States um, or his or her designees who could be anybody in the federal government to um, say that people can be picked up, uh, detained without trial, um, uh, tried, imprisoned, and, and killed. I don't think it'll happen often. Um, I don't. That's the non-tinfoil hat part of this. But the fact that that's possible, it's very troubling to me. I don't think the government has the resources to pull off full-on oppression. And what I mean by that is... Um, and this is described at length in the book, uh, they may want to do bad things. Some people within government may want to do bad things. I think that there will be plenty of military and law enforcement people, the Oath Keepers, uh, sort of, you know, people that um, are part of an organization where they, they pledge to keep their oath to the Constitution, which is to not violate the Constitution. Um, and, you know, every, 
every military and law enforcement person takes an oath to obey the Constitution. That's where right. the term comes from. <clears throat> right. So I think there'll be oath keepers that will prevent bad guys in government from doing really bad things, but also there won't be resources. The government would need a tremendous amount of fuel, spare parts, and personnel who are willing to do all these bad things. And I don't think, even in a partial collapse, they're going to have the fuel, spare parts, or personnel to do all these things. So the good news and the hope from this book is the government can't pull it off. Um, and that's an important reality check. So I, I think there's troubling civil liberties things. I see troubling um, political trends. I spend a fair amount of my day thinking about politics, to be quite honest. Because um, uh, that's your full-time job, right? Well, yeah. I, I, I think it's fair to say I'm an observer of government. Um, yeah. I don't want to imply that I'm, you know, super secret spy guy or something. Okay, for those that might have noticed a little bit of a chop in the flow of the conversation here, I had to take a a break to take care of some business because I'm doing a little multitasking. But anyway, Glenn, we were talking about some of the troubling things out there. You were talking about the NDAA Act, which I agree with you on that. It should not be... uh, We should not be giving any government official that power. And I am I am troubled by that. I'm kind of like you. I kind of feel that it would be very, very difficult for the government to be able to crack down on every human being in the United States. I think there's a lot of tinfoil hatters out there that like to spread it around and say stuff like, oh my God, you know, they could be they could be doing all these kinds of nasty things to us. Logistically, that's very tough. You know, it's kind of like the person that says, well, the government's going to come take our guns away. You know, stop and think about that for a minute. Do you know how big of an undertaking that would be to get a couple hundred million firearms out of the hands of people in the United States? That would just be, you know, a huge undertaking. I think the government has bigger, bigger problems to worry about. Exactly right, and that's great summary of why I don't think there will be massive oppression in the United States. I I just don't see it coming. Another trend out there that I see that is troubling is partially political and partially social, and that is the fact um, that 47% of U.S. households are are, uh, not paying income taxes. It's 49.1%. Tell I'm uh, around government a lot, right? With all these figures, 49.1 percent of households receive uh, a federal benefit program of some kind. Can I um, can I stop you right there? You bet. You are 100 percent correct. And I'm going to tell you, I'm, I, I want. I'm not. This is not directed to you, Glenn. This is directed to some people out there. I'm going to try not to get too political here. It really, really upsets me when people make a big deal about the 47% comment that Mitt Romney made. Now, I'm not a huge Mitt Romney supporter. This is not supposed to be political. But he was talking about what you're talking about right now, Glenn. He was talking about the fact that nearly half of the households get government aid. And quite frankly, when you think about it, he was telling the truth. I wish people would quit beating the man up because he was telling the truth. Perhaps he didn't choose his words properly. You know, oh wow, surprise, surprise. A politician didn't choose his words properly. Right? They all do that, don't they? That's right. You know, um, but that's what he's talking about. Now, I do want to put a caveat in here, though. 
Unfortunately, the the veterans, the the ex-military people, are also getting money that is counted as government assistance, and it shouldn't be. I mean, a veteran's pension, I mean, you know, good Lord, they served our country, and, and I respect them, and I salute them, and they deserve what they get. That should not be counted as government assistance. Uh, that is counted in the total figure. I don't know if you know that or not. Yeah, it is, and that's a good point. Um, I have several friends who are military veterans, and quite a few of them have injuries, and they're not the dramatic injuries, they're, you know, bad backs and things, and they basically um, uh, <laughs> donated um, their bodies um, for a great cause, and now they're being paid a little bit, not enough, uh, in, in pensions and VA benefits to make up for that. So you're right, and, and when I say that 49.1% of households receive government uh, uh, benefits of some kind, some of it has been paid for in the past to an extent Social Security uh, is has been paid for. You get more out of it usually than you put into it, which is about three to one. But anyway, I don't mean to get into statistics. So it's not all bad people. That's not my point. It's not 49.1% of households in America are bad um, or 47% of the households who don't pay federal income tax are bad people. It's just a reality that half the country, in one way or another, is getting free stuff. Yeah, they are. And, and here's the thing. And again, I want to say this one more time so I don't get hate mail. Um, we're not pointing the finger at the veterans who served this country honorably and are getting money. They deserve that. That should not be counted. But let me ask you a question, Glenn. And again, and we'll, we'll get back to the survival subject here in a minute. Let's talk about the other half. Yeah. Okay? The other half is footing the bill for the first half. Absolutely. What are the figures? I, I They change from time to time. The top 1% of federal income taxpayers pay, I don't know, 40 or 50% of, of the income taxes in the country. I know that sounds crazy, but it, it's true. It's true. And and so you've got the, the very wealthy paying an incredibly disproportionate share um, of the amount of taxes. Guess what? More and more people, and I talk to them, um, who are in those <laughs> categories are saying things like, why am I doing this? Why am I getting up early? Why am I risking all my money and my kids' uh, inheritance to have a business when the government's just going to take it all in taxes? So people are starting to kind of drop out of the system, and that's, that's bad for the economy. So politically speaking, you've got half of folks out there. And I was, I was wrong when I said free stuff. You know what? You, you made me think about it. You're right. Veterans getting veterans benefits. That's not free. That's not free. They they paid for that. Yes, that's right. Now, the majority of the households receiving things are, they didn't do anything to get it. But anyway, so you've got a bunch of people, excluding veterans, who have gotten into some situation where they're getting free stuff. Politically and socially, that's very, very bad because when the, when the checks quit rolling or the EBT cards quit rolling, um, those people are going to get very, very upset, and they're going to be completely dependent, and they're going to be terrified because they have no ability to eat or do anything else, and that's a scary powder keg situation. Okay, now, let me let me stop you there. I 100% agree with you. Let's talk about that because this gets back to the survival and prepping subject here. I, ha- I have said that before. I've said that many times. I've said that when things get bad and assistance starts getting cut off, which, you know, let's face it, that's what it's going to take in the USA right now to be able to turn things around. We're going to have to start cutting back 
benefits. When that happens, I think people are going to resort to desperate measures. And I think you might see more violence and you might see more people doing some pretty crazy things. Would you agree? Absolutely. And that is the genesis of the security problem that arises in a collapse. That is exactly what the problem is. A bunch of people who have no ability to take care of themselves, they're scared. I don't know. I've, I've gone a while without food um, and, and without sleep. Um, and you know, I get mean and nasty, and people will suggest things to me that make no sense, and they seem a little bit more believable. When these people are tired and hungry and scared to death, and somebody says, those people over there have stuff, let's go get it. That doesn't make any sense. You and me sitting here calmly you know, uh, talking about this, we'd say, well, that's crazy. Who would go do that? Well, <laughs> they might in that situation. And then when you, you have even a few instances of this going on, you're going to overwhelm law enforcement and hospitals and everything else. You know, two words, L.A. riots. That's all you need to say to prove that to be true. Katrina, there's a one-word answer to that. So in quickly, very quickly, um, you will have the services overwhelmed, and then people are going to have to start taking care of themselves, and that's where sheepdogs and, and listeners to your podcasts are going to come in. Um, by the way, um, as far as the, the depth of the problem, uh, welfare spending, which excludes Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, topped $1 trillion as of today, the day we're recording. How much? How much? $1 trillion with a T. $1 trillion. You know, I mean... Yeah. In one year. Yeah, that's in a one-year period. That's for fiscal year 2011. Okay, that's a big, big problem. A trillion dollars. That's more money than the world has ever known or conceived of in the past. I mean, it's just... That's the social and political problem of dependence that I see going on there. Um, do, you mind if I, do you mind if I put that in perspective? I'd love it. Okay. Uh, I'm doing this off the top of my head. I actually pulled out a calculator and did this a few months ago. I'm going to take a real educated guess, but I'm going to be pretty accurate here. Let me, let me put it into, into context, or let me help people understand how much money a trillion dollars is. If you were to lay on a table one dollar per second, you ready for this? If you laid on a table a dollar bill every second, it would take 33,000 years to accumulate one trillion dollars. 33, I'll say it again, 33,000 years at a dollar per second to accumulate a trillion dollars. Now, I'm going to get out my calculator while you're speaking, and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to verify my figures, but I'm pretty sure about that, because there's 86,400 seconds in a day. I know that. Um, so you, you go ahead and, uh, and, and cover it, and I'm going, to, I'm going to verify that, but I just I want people to understand. How, so, so when you hear that we are a trillion dollars, that the deficit, not the debt, that the deficit is a trillion dollars, if we paid it back a dollar a second, it would take 33,000 years. The deficit this year is about $1.5 trillion. The trillion I was talking about and we're talking about is just the amount of welfare. Oh, the amount of welfare. Okay, never mind. Yeah, okay. Welfare, and that excludes Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, which is even more. Um, and this, yeah, so 
that's a big problem. Well, while you're calculating this, I'll, I'll tell you about another trend that I see that is very disturbing. That's just-in-time inventory. I know that sounds all wonky or some MBA sort of thing, but it's not wonky. That's the, the inventory system we've decided to come up with in this country um, in which there is very, very little inventory that a store or a, a manufacturing facility will keep on hand. They just have enough to basically do exactly what they need to do at that time. A classic example is a friend of mine was involved in putting uh, jet engines together, and he said there would be one incredibly critical part. I mean, a jet engine doesn't get made without this part, and a jet doesn't fly without this one little teeny $30 part. It would come from Turkey. And not only would it come from Turkey, but it would arrive just in time so that the mechanic putting the engine together would have this one $30 piece within about a 10-minute window of when he needed to put it in there. And if, if the production was sped up or slowed down, um, that $35 part wouldn't be there and the thing wouldn't get built. And this assumes there are no earthquakes in Turkey, and there often are earthquakes in Turkey. So it shows you how fragile things are. The, the best way to describe this is how I describe it in the book, where I went to the back of a grocery store one day. I was just curious. I was thinking, this, this, something's wrong, something's amiss here with this, this economy of ours. And I went to the back and I watched all these semi-trucks rolling in and out at very regular intervals. And then I realized there wasn't any big storage facility, I mean, at the grocery store. The amount of food they had on the shelves was pretty much it. Yeah. And then a, a truck would come and let, let's pick on Doritos for a while. They might have a day or two of Doritos in this big grocery store. And then a truck, I live on the West Coast, so probably from the L.A. area, comes a thousand miles and drops off a pallet of Doritos and then does that the next two days and the next two days. Well, if you have disruptions uh, in diesel fuel, um, the the safety and security of that of that truck rolling up Interstate 5 from L.A., or you're not paying truck drivers because you can't pay them or the money's not worth anything, right. all of a sudden, snap of a finger, you've, you've only got a day or two worth of Doritos or yogurt or steak or potato, whatever it is. Medicine, that's going to be a big problem. So just-in-time inventory, the, the fragile nature of the American economy um, relying on this incredibly complicated um, system of resupplying itself is going to be a huge problem. It is no exaggeration. It is not tinfoil hat to say that the second America realizes there's a big problem, the grocery stores will be empty in a matter of, I think, minutes, yeah. maybe hours. Um it, it, it happens all the time. That's the thing that's so frustrating, Bob, is I tell people these things, and they look at me like I'm crazy. And I just got done watching it on TV at, at, during the latest hurricane or something like that. I mean, this is not bold prediction on our part. It is looking at what always happens in a similar situation. So I think just-in-time inventory is a terrible trend. Another trend that I see that's alarming is the lack of skills. And I will admit, I'm, I'm in this boat. I've reacquired some skills. I grew up uh, in, a, in a rural setting, poor. I grew up poor and in the country. And I had a bunch of skills in the past uh, to take care of myself and you know, maybe feed myself, maybe keep myself warm and those sorts of things. I, I lost them once I entered the white-collar world. But there, and so I don't have all the skills I need to have, so I'm guilty along with everybody else. But we have a lack of skills in this country. People don't know how to change tires. People don't know... My goodness, there's there's a state near me, Oregon, where they uh, they don't allow self-serve gasoline. Everything's full serve. So I remember that. I remember traveling through Oregon. Yeah. Yeah, somebody pumps your gas. And I watched 
uh, a woman in an SUV with Oregon license plates up in Washington State at a gas station. She pulled into a gas station. She got out and she waited for somebody to fill up her gas tank. When nobody came out, because it's Washington and we have self-serve, she tried to pump her own gas. And I watched, and I was... I wasn't laughing because it wasn't funny, but there, I just was in shock. She pulls out a credit card and starts waving it around the machine like there's just going to be some magic thing that's going to happen. She pulls the pump off. She didn't even know about unscrewing her, her gas tank lid and things. She didn't know how to put gas in her car. You're kidding me. Again. And this is an extreme example. But there are a million important skills that most of us don't have. And when there aren't people... Um, there aren't doctors and ER physicians when there aren't um, people who know how to fix things. Um, when those people aren't around because they can't get to us and we can't pay them with money that you know is worth anything, we're all going to be in a world of hurt. I mean, Bob, do you know how to fix your car with all the computers in it? I sure don't. No, I don't. I don't. And that's going to be a huge problem. So those are some trends, you know, political, social things, just-in-time inventory and a lack of skills that over and above the, the economic situation that I see being bad are going are gonna to make this, I think, a, a really nasty um, problem because we have it so good in this country um, that when we don't have it good for even a short period of time, um, the, the crash is going to be hard. I mean, we're all kind of like movie stars in a sense, and all of a sudden, you know, the caviar starts flowing, and, and you know, it's going to be hard. Elsewhere in the world, they don't have all the stuff we have, and stuff going away is not as big of a deal to them because it's just another another day for them. But it's going to be really, really hard on us, and that's that's a scary thing. So that's what I see. Yeah, and you know, you just laid out the case nicely for you know what can happen from a common sense perspective. And and thanks for doing that. We're we're close to wrapping up. Um, I want to get back to something. My calculation was slightly off. It's thirty one thousand years. Thirty thirty one thousand it's but but think about it. And the reason I am being the reason I'm kind of being um, anal about this, if you want to call it that, is my God, a dollar a second and it would take 31,000 years just to replenish a trillion dollars, and you say that's how much you know is going out there in government assistance, and in our, in our deficits, one and a half trillion. You know, let these numbers sink in for a minute. I don't care who gets elected on November 6th. It, uh, it, you know what, it's going to take a long, long time to turn this around. And I, and I certainly hope that people aren't, sitting back thinking, oh, well, gee, if the right guy wins on November 6th, uh, a year later we're all going to be happy and swimming in, in, in money and happiness again. No way. No way. It's going to take... I mean, with numbers like that, with, with deficits that, that can take thousands of years, well, let's say, let's say decades to pay back, with deficits that can take decades to pay back, I don't understand how people, uh, if, if you're thinking that everything's going to be okay if the right guy gets elected, um, I, I, let me urge you to think again. And let me, let me amplify that point because it's important. Um, if, if Mitt Romney wins, um, my prepping will not stop. Um, me either. It, the, the one thing that will be different if Romney wins is that um, uh, ammunition prices will not spike as much. And, uh, <laughs> there won't be anybody, you know, telling me I can't buy an AR-15 anymore. So, I mean, there, there are differences, but still, uh, it's, it still goes on. And um, I can't rely, you can't rely, listeners can't rely on the government saving things. And we have to, we have to take care of 
ourselves because we need to take care of our families, and we just do. Um, I came to this conclusion very reluctantly. Um, I want to be clear. I I had, still have a pretty decent life, um, kind of a cool white-collar job, and I'm, I'm very much a member of society. Um, I, I talked about this uh, in the past. Um, I, I go to every governor's inaugural ball, okay? <laughs> every four years, I go to... I have a tuxedo. Um, wow. I go to the governor's inaugural ball, and um, I, I fit in extremely well in polite society. Um, and so I'm not some outcast or anything like that. Um, I, I want... Thing, I, I want things to be okay. I don't. I haven't given up on life, and I want things to collapse so I can say I told you so, and I can shoot some zombies, and I can yeah. live some fantasy life. And so I want things to get back to normal. But even I, a guy who runs in these circles, um, still is prepping because um, I understand that I need to. And, and, and a quick thought, I know we're wrapping up. There are, there are quite a few people in some of the upper levels of government, one in particular I've got to know well, um, who is a prepper. I mean, there, are, there are a fair number of folks who I think know what's going on, know that it's unsustainable, and they themselves are prepping. And when this person, I can't describe who it is, but this person in the position that he's in um, laughed and said, yeah, it's completely unsustainable. He didn't laugh like, ha-ha. He, he's just like, oh, my goodness, it's completely clear to everybody. This is unsustainable, and here are all the, the things I'm doing to prepare for this. I thought I'm a lot less crazy. <laughs> exactly. And you know, and you are a lot less crazy. And uh well this is good. This is good, Glenn. This was a great discussion here and um you know, it's gonna air in its entirety and I, I think it's very good. So I hope that we've gotten some people's attention. If if you haven't already been doing some common sense prepping and, and let me underline the word common sense, get Glenn's book. Two ninety nine days, two hundred. Hey, where where did you come up with the name two hundred ninety nine days? <laughs> it's hopeful is the answer. Um, the two hundred ninety nine days, and it, this is the first chapter and the last chapter, which is the two hundred ninety ninth chapter. So the first and last chapters are the same, and in it, um, the main character is looking back at what happened from the day that the collapse kicked off until that day when he is going to. The governor's inaugural ball. There's a new new governor. See, this is all... When I said I base this on myself and this is real, this is what I was getting at. And so he's looking back at the 299 days that have gone on, and that's when the collapse has happened and a bunch of things in the book have happened. And he's looking back at the way things were and some of the things that happened, some of the sacrifices that were made, and the bittersweet fact that there's now a new governor and things are normal and, and restored enough for there to be an inaugural ball and how things are going to be different, and his role in the new government, basically. And so it was a 299-day period. That's hopeful because, unlike other books where humanity is plunged into a thousand years of darkness, uh, we're plunged into 299 bad days, and then it ends. It doesn't end completely happily and wonderfully, and life gets back, but I mean, things get way better in, a, in less than a year, because that's what I think is going to happen. I think America's that resilient, and I think that we can we can come back from this after a very painful period. And so that's where the name comes from. Very good. Very good. Well, I just want to let people know before I let Glenn go, if you go to handgunworld.com, I just put a link to Glenn's book in a uh, on a page on my website called Recommended Books. Excellent. So 
Yes, uh, and if you use my Amazon affiliate link, it'll help out my show. Buy Glenn's book. Go to handgunworld.com. Recommended books is the page that I set up, and yours is the first one on the list. That's fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, and please go through Bob's Amazon page because people don't know this. It costs money to to put on a podcast, and uh, you know you shouldn't have to pay that out of pocket, Bob. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to do if I have to, but there are a lot of generous people that listen to my show, and I'm sure that if they want to get their, get your book, they'll go through uh, my link on my page. Again, that's called Recommended Books. On that page, you'll see the link. Glenn, um, thanks a lot. I, I appreciate this. You know, uh, this was a good discussion. Would you mind coming back in a couple weeks and doing part two? Oh, heck yeah. Anytime. Anytime, Bob. Okay. Yeah, let's do part two coming up shortly. And... Uh, Glenn Tate, thanks very much for taking this time. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. No problem. Have a good day. You too. Thank you, Glenn. By the way, I want to let you know that if you want to purchase his book, it would really help if you would purchase it through me. Uh, You'll help support my show. Both of them I do. I do this show, and I also do the Handgun World podcast, which is primarily focused on guns. I like to try to keep survival and guns separate subjects, although recently I've done a couple of survival and preparedness shows with my buddy Ben Branham over at the Handgun World podcast. I guess I've, you know, it took me a while to figure this out, but not everybody listens to both shows, and that's okay. I don't expect everybody to listen to both shows that I do. So I figure I might as well try to get as much information out to both sides as I possibly can. I know it's impossible to share everything, but just in case you don't listen to the other show, I want to let you know that you'll help out my entire cause by buying Glenn's book, 299 Days, through me, through my Amazon affiliate program. Price is the same. It's not going to cost you any more, but you're going to help me out. I will put a link in the show notes and a link on today's Survival Show Forum. If you want to go to handgunworld.com and check out the recommended books uh, page, recommended books, there's a page there that says recommended books, you'll see the Amazon link. Or if you just want to go to todayssurvival.com, which is my website, and just click the link for the show, for this show posting. Just go ahead and click the link that I post in there, and I'll link straight to that page where you can buy the book. Last but not least, let me close by saying, if you want to email me, bob at todayssurvival.com, bob at todayssurvival.com. Remember, there's two S's in that web address. You can find the show at www.todayssurvival.com. Or you can find it on iTunes if you sh- if you search today's survival show on iTunes, should be able to find it there. Stitcher Radio and all those good places, folks. I'm Bob Main. It's my goal to help you do what you can with what you have, wherever you are. Thanks for tuning in to a common sense preparedness show. I'll catch you next time. Goodbye.